When the exhibition Painting Edo opened at the Harvard Art Museums in February of 2020, it was, as my dad likes to say, an event. It wasn't just the largest single exhibition the museum had ever mounted, showcasing a world-class collection of paintings from the Edo period in Japan, which, if you know your history, lasted from around 1615 to 1868. It was also really, really well done. Which, when it comes to displaying both a donated gift and, moreover, explaining non-Western art to a largely Western audience, well, it's a tough needle to thread. And I know how well they did it, because I was there, that February, in the galleries, on assignment for the New York Review of Books. And as we moved through the galleries, none of us had any sense that we were popping in for an hour to stroll among priceless deck chairs on the Titanic. The exhibition closed a month later, and stayed closed, until the objects came down at the beginning of June in 2021. COVID took a lot from us. Tangible, intangible. And I don't think it's trivial to count museum exhibitions and experiences among the losses. But I also think it's important, as the pandemic recedes, at least where I am, at least right now, that it gave us something too. Specifically, all these museums that had been forced to close their doors for a year or more learned a tough lesson in accessibility and how accessible these museums have always ever been, both to the communities they serve and to the audiences who will never actually cross their thresholds. And painting Edo in particular, and as we'll see once it closed down, offered a masterclass in what it means to organize an exhibition during our current moment, when accessibility rifts are being exposed all over the place. What does it mean to tell the story of one culture to another? How important is it to actually stand in front of the object? Is that where the education lies? And why is the Edo period the perfect case study to explain how art historians continually wrestle with narratives? I sat down with the exhibition's co-curator, Dr. Rachel Saunders, to dive into these issues and more. And I'm so excited to share this interview with you. And a quick note, especially for anyone listening in a car. There are a few sirens recorded in the background. They were unavoidable. But rest assured, you're not about to get pulled over, at least not by the Cambridge police. So without further ado, my interview with Dr. Rachel Saunders. So I'm Rachel Saunders. I'm the Abby Aldrich Rockefeller Curator of Asian Art at the Harvard Art Museums, and I've been there since 2015. And I'm a specialist in Japanese art. My own field of um, study is, is, is actually medieval art, but I am very fortunate to be the co-curator with Professor Yukio Lippitt at Harvard University of the special exhibition, Painting Edo, Japanese Art from the Feinberg Collection. you know this exhibition better than anybody and what I'd like to do is start by describing what it feels like when you walk in because there's there's so much to it and it's very easy I think people have on the one hand people are a little bit intimidated by their well they're intimidated by art they don't know anyway they're intimidated by non-western art for sure 
And I think that people have no idea how intimate this exhibition feels because of how large it is and because it feels like a lot of times non-Western parts of museums are the ones that feel more like history and more mm-hmm. like school somehow than, you know, this big, like, gripping painting that you kind of, you can't help but be pulled into, you know, this big Pollock or something. You know, right. it's like these small, delicate objects, you kind of feel like you need to know the history in order to appreciate them. And then actually you walk up to them and you realize that they're absolutely stunning and you lose yourself in them. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, just, just walk us through it a little bit sure okay so what I've done here is to help myself because I actually haven't been in the exhibition for over a year um and so when we when we were talking about doing this podcast I realized um that my own connection to it that you know over this time we've been doing a lot of virtual programming and um really a lot of virtual programming that's been been great but it is a very different field and the just having to accept that you can't walk into the galleries. I think there was a bit of cognitive realignment on my own part that I realized when, when, when I was thinking about how we might talk about this exhibition together um, because we never expected this to happen, of course. Um, you know, we opened on the 14th of February in 2020 and, and we were forced to close the doors again um, on March the 12th. So it's, it's you know... Um, we had wonderful responses during the few weeks that we were open. And I think did, you had the chance to see it in person. Didn't yeah. You? Yeah. So I'm really happy to hear that. That's great. But for me, um, thinking back on what it was, what it was like to be in the exhibition, I suppose it made me um, think about what we had been trying to do in mounting the exhibition in the first place. And then I was trying to assess whether we might have done that or not, whether we had, you know, whether we had met our, um, what we had imagined for this exhibition, had we been able to bring it off. And, if you don't mind, I think I'd just like to start with what we try to do and then sure. we can walk into the exhibition. And so um, I think there are, there are two or three animating principles that were behind the exhibition. And the biggest one, the sort of umbrella general um, aim was to do what you have just um, articulated, was to create a space where people hopefully wouldn't feel that this was so unfamiliar and unapproachable. And what we wanted to do was just offer people the opportunity to be in as immersive a space as possible so that they could just have the sense of of seeing differently. And that was all we wanted to do. Um, So, you know, there are 120 works or so in the galleries, and that's a lot. Um, And this is is a large exhibition. It's 8,000 square feet. So that's the maximum we can do in our gallery. So as you say, it's big. It could be overwhelming, could be confusing. Um, But we really wanted to offer people immersion in a more comfortable way than just, you know, some kind of sense of confusion mm-hmm. <laughs> that might come out of not being um, necessarily that familiar with this, this material. So that was the first one was like offer people the opportunity to see differently. The second thing was to offer people the opportunity to see the category of quote unquote Japanese art differently. And so, you know, often when people, we, we're talking about art that isn't as familiar to us in the West, we will use a place name and say, we're talking about Japan here, so I'm just going to use Japan. Uh, and as, as you say, often it feels like it's history. It's somewhere else. You know, um, history is a foreign place or a foreign place becomes history. Um, and there's a lot of that that happens. It's a sense that it's other, and it's not just other place, it's other time. And so what we were doing was we were troubling that 
um, category by nuancing quote-unquote Japanese art and presenting a show that wasn't about presenting Japan or Japanese art, but a show that was about painting Edo. And so um, talking about this early modern period of Japanese productive material production. Um, so I, actually, I have, it's maybe not very easy to use the word Japanese art in this context. We were talking about Edo painting. That's what we were doing. And I think that's often quite difficult when people are coming from a sort of Euro or American centric position to get the sort of sense of the full range. I mean, there's more than 12, 1500 years of history of painting in Japan. And so you can't talk about it as quote unquote Japanese art, really. It's, it's just not doing it um, justice. So this show was very deliberately called Painting Edo. I mean, would the equivalent be be kind of having having a show that's, God, specifically German art from World War One to World War Two, you know, kind of and and calling it European art? <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. That's yeah. a great comparison. And one of the crazy things about Edo period painting is just the sheer variety. I mean, yeah. I think that's another thing that really takes people by surprise is how much variety there is and how how much of it survives. It's just an enormous amount. Um, so we can get into that in a moment. But the, the last thing that we really wanted to do, sort of number three, sort of going from the biggest to the, to the most focused was... Um, to present uh, Edo painting on its own terms as far as we could. Mm -hmm. Not just Edo painting as seen by 20th century or 21st century scholars, but um, Edo painting as far as we could on its own terms, as, it seen, as we can retrieve how it was sort of understood by the people who created and consumed it. And of course, that's not entirely retrievable, mm -hmm. but there were a few things that we could do. And one of them was to arrange the exhibition according not to sort of conventional terminology that's been used for Edo painting, sort of there's so much of it, we've needed to organize it, we've needed to have categories. Um, and these categories have become, you know, over sort of 50, 70 years, they've become really habituated and they're not offering a great return anymore. <laughs> so we wanted to go back and look at what words were used by the artists, by the consumers of these works, um, in the Edo period and to use that to organize the painting rather than um, these this scholarly terminology from the 20th century. So we went with lineages and the Japanese word for that is, is ryuha. And we used, we tried to use English translations of those Edo period terms. And so that was kind of how we got to the organizing principles of the exhibition. But we didn't want to throw that in people's faces straight away because we just thought, you know, this isn't a very welcoming way to start, uh, you know, an exhibition with a history lesson or and not even a history lesson, a revisionist his history lesson on things you may not know anything about. So mm -hmm. we tried to have a, um, we wanted to have that sort of immersion be the, the emphasis and to have uh, the visual experience come to you. And so when you walk into the exhibition, the first thing that you see is a really, really big painting. Um, and it's kind of the preface to the exhibition and it's Tani Buncho's Moon and Grasses and it's a really very very big painting enormous painting for for a Japanese hanging scroll painting and it's it's horizontal in in or orientation which is unusual because they're usually vertical tall and slim 
And it's this kind of window-like painting, and it's an enormous harvest moon sort of just hanging in the sky. And then in the foreground, you've got a, a sort of group of rushes, and it's all, it's all just in ink. It's not polychrome. It's just ink on, uh, ink on silk. And these rushes are rising out of the ground. You can't really see where from, into the foreground. And then one of them is rising up across the picture plane and it just sort of caresses the bottom of the moon. And you get this incredible diagonal orientation going on here in this very, very simple painting. Just, just ink on silk, a moon and some um, rushes, uh, some reeds by the river, a bit of a misty background and um, a very, very large painter's seal actually that's, that's there. So it's, it's structure is very simple, but it's a painting that's, um, it's actually, a, it draws you in because it looks like a window. And because the reeds are rising out of the foreground, you're there. That's where you are. Your viewing position is on the riverbank in the reeds. There are no figures painted in this painting. They don't need to be because you are the figure in the painting. Mm -hmm. You are experiencing viewing the, the harvest moon from the banks of the Sumida River here. And actually, the inscription tells us quite a lot. It tells us that it was painted in 1817 for a particular um, moon viewing party. And moon viewing is something that um, people people uh, in, it's it's still done today in Asia the um, the harvest moon um, so in you know pre I guess pre pre Gregorian times it would be the eighth month uh, but now it's in September um, so this is uh, the, the f I think it's the fifteenth day of the eighth month in eighteen seventeen a group of people went and they went and viewed the harvest moon on the riverbank in Sumida in in Edo. And this painting was painted as a gift for one of those people. It was commissioned for one of those people at the moon viewing party. And at moon viewing, you would, you would, you would drink alcohol and you would eat and you would uh, be with your friends. And you would also then be participating in a very, very long tradition of looking at the moon on the same day in the same sky uh, with a lot of other people, even if you're separated from them. And particularly if you're separated from a lover or family member or by some vicissitude that you can't be together that night you were comforted by the idea that you're all looking at the moon together on that same night. Mm. And so it's a really, um, even if you don't know all of that, you can still sort of feel sucked into this painting, yeah. or at least we hope anyway. And of course, as soon as COVID hit, the resonance of that painting yeah. was, was sort of um, amped up in, a, in an unexpected way. And the first event we did actually was for Brigham and women's health workers uh, who needed an art break. And that's a series that we do here. And um, we looked at this painting together. And it was really, you know, it was early on. And it was, you know, as a curator, you don't really know what you can do to help in a pandemic. Um, <laughs> if, that, if that was helpful, then that was, it was great. But it was, it was quite an emotional experience to, to be with them and to look at this together and, and just have some time out of that, that situation at the beginning. Oh. And this painting was doing work that we could never have anticipated it would done. Yeah. Um, so. Well, so so I want to actually pull on that thread a little bit because that ended up being a, a really nice framing device for the article, which was, you know, is there something kind of inherently appropriate that an, uh, that an exhibition on Edo should be closed to the public? Um, you know, and it was a little bit of a, a I don't want to say it was kind of gimmicky, but, you know, it, it kind of did its job nicely because yeah. I think, you know, the average person doesn't necessarily know that that's a really important piece of, of Edo's history. Um, but I would love to actually kind of talk a little bit about how how Edo's 
closed offness enriched its art. You know, kind of what that inward gaze did for the work, if that is kind of as important a piece of it as as it seems. That's such a great question. Um, and it's, it feels to me it's, it's one of those sort of tenets of history that um, we sort of need now because we also need to push against it. Mm. And it's as productive to push against that narrative as it is to investigate the narrative itself. Mm. So I think you're hitting on something really important there. And, and you know, the idea that a, a, an exhibition of Edo painting would be closed, it's, it's so kind of ironic. And Actually, our opening night speaker, um, Time and Screech, he talked about all the terrible things that happened during the Edo period because you, you know, you sort of have this um, generalized sense of Edo as this, you know, the, the archipelago is uh, quote unquote closed and it's a, pe- a quote unquote peaceful period and, and you know, the people are you know, doing this and that and, and there's an enormous explosion in, in visual culture and publishing culture in all kinds of ways. So there's this idea that it's a kind of peaceful realm. And certainly that's something that um, when 19th century Europeans and Americans discovered, quote unquote, uh, Japan, that's something they also like to think about is this this kind of idealized past. Japan is an idealized past. And they even kind of alight it with um, with sort of notions of of Hellenistic society sometimes. So there's incredible kind of idealizing, romancing of the past going on. Projecting. Yeah, absolutely. But in fact, Edo was not... Um, closed is, is one way of putting it, but it, it was just very selective. Uh, Edo, the Edo period was a very selective period of, of contact with foreign um, uh, merchants. And there was no diplomatic, uh, no official diplomatic contact, but there was definitely a lot of contact going on from, from, uh, with merchants and traders. And uh, there were also missionaries coming in and out for a period. So Edo is perhaps not as closed as we as we like to think, you know, this this exotic place that no one could get into and suddenly it was open. I do think that's in part a product of colonial um, history mm-hmm. uh, and narrative shaping, you know, oh, the West opened Japan and Japan was forced to become modern. And that's a whole very, very complicated story. But um, yeah, so I do. So that is true. There's, it's also not true that Edo was entirely peaceful. I mean, they they we're not having the same kind of internecine warfare that they had had for centuries preceding, but it's not a peaceful era by any means. There's a, there's a lot of um, struggle going on to sort of create what we now call a nation. Um, I think 60 odd provinces of, of Japan that were in their, in their own way, their own nations. Mm-hmm. Um, there were epidemics and earthquakes and famines. And I mean, in, in the 1780s, there were at least two volcanic eruptions and a famine. And um, I mean, it was just you know, the kinds of things that were happening were, you know, pretty horrendous. And yeah. to be reading about those things uh, during a pandemic, you're right, there's definitely a, a kind of resonance there. And I actually wondered, I mean, it was in, it was in an, a moment early on, but whether the, the fact that these paintings had witnessed mm. this kind of thing and had survived... Um, and when we were open physically, people were coming out of the exhibition and some of them were feeling kind of transported. And there was, people seemed a bit kind of blissful after coming out mm-hmm. uh, quite often and that they'd, they'd been somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And I sort of began to wonder if there was kind of any psychic residue in these paintings. You know, they'd have witnessed all of this and, and here we were, you know, in, in the early, in early uh, 2020, we still 
you know, there's a lot of political stress in the country. The, the pandemic was coming. And there was a moment for them to be away from it somehow with these paintings. And I, I do see what you're saying. I do think there's a kind of terrible resonance in, in, in and this. And also an incredible meditative... I found that by, by being invited into something that was so detailed and so delicate, and at the same time, you know, there were other objects that, that had these, you know, just kind of big, you know, these blossoms that just felt like it was, you know, watercolor that you just add a drop of water to and it just pools everything, you know, that, that you, you find a therapeutic, meditative, almost Rothko-esque, you know, it's like the more you dissolve into the work, the calmer you feel. Um, and I think that that also probably contributed to to all of your blissed out, you know, <laughs> visitors, because they just weren't expecting, you know, they were expecting a history lesson, and they yeah. got a, a bit of a Zen meditation lesson. Oh, I'm too. really happy to hear that. <laughs> At least I did. I mean, I was... That's great. Um, something that you said, though, about, about this, uh, you know, this kind of narrative... Um, you know, this this story that we tell ourselves that, you know, is kind of inadvertently influenced by colonialism, that that the idea that Japan only became modern when, you know, the West <laughs> pulled it into modernism, which, you know, mm. um, is certainly that is a narrative that I'm happy to blow up. You know, like that's yeah. that's a part of all of this that I think is actually really, really critical. Um, but when you were describing the the moon viewing party and we as the figures who are kind of invited into the artwork to kind of step into I mean that's a very modern idea and that's something that you'll see happening in in modern art you know with a capital M starting even a little later in the west than 1817 how did Japanese art start to evolve towards that modernism itself? It's a really great question. And um, actually, you know, the, this painting that we started with, um, Tani Buncho, this artist, he's very aware of, you know, Western conventions of just linear perspective um, you know, and the, these kinds of things. They, they, the, people know about this in Japan. They've known about it for a long time. They just choose not to practice it mm -hmm. in in a, in a regime in which um, mimetic fidelity is not the ultimate goal mm -hmm. of painting. <laughs> They're what, trying to do something more. Yeah, what is the goal? And then so, uh, look yeah, backwards. That's, that's a really interesting question. So the goal, there are many, many goals. I think that this painting in particular, yes, there are certainly some elements here that we could attribute to his knowledge of, of what people are doing in the West. That's you know, definitely there. It's, it's, in, it's, in the, it's in the water, if you like, <laughs> at that point. Mm -hmm. um, it's there. We're already global mm -hmm. by this point. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're well past this point. I mean, the, the Portuguese, they arrived in 1543. So it's been a long time that this is, you know, it's, it's, it's swimming around. But I do think that um, one thing that hasn't really been said about this painting is that it draws on, it's very large, very large. And it is a hanging scroll format painting, so it would have hung on a wall in an alcove, probably, a very large alcove. But it sort of asks for that viewing position that a folding screen 
would ask for. So if you think about um, six panel folding screens, these very large works of art, they're usually 3.5 meters each and they'll come in pairs. So that's seven meters. That's, uh, what's that in feet? I'm sorry, I'm not very good with feet, but it's, they're it's enormous. <laughs> it's really big. And they're as tall as you are, you know, the five foot five sort of thing. And you sit on the ground in Japan, you sit mm. on a tatami mat you, and you don't stand and admire a work of art. You're going to be sitting. Those, those are, and so you are in those paintings very often. And they've been painting those for a long time, you know, um, 15th, 16th century. You're already seeing this happen in, in paintings that have nothing to do with what might be going on in the West um, at that point. So I personally think that this painting might have something more in common with. Um, well, in the exhibition, we have a couple of, they're, they're all Edo period works, of course, but um, we have a, a pair of screens by Uragami Shunkin, and um, they're called Precipitous Rocks and Rushing Water. And your, your viewing position is in that, is, is sitting by the water in those screens. There are no figures. And so you are transported into those, those landscapes. And that's a very, very old um, trope in Asian painting. So coming from, you know, 10th, 11th century China, for sure, um, you're already having ink landscape painting where the idea is that you basically transport yourself into this painting and you travel through the painting mentally. So even if the perspective isn't quite what we're seeing here visually in those earlier paintings, it's a very, very old idea in Asia is that you travel in the painting. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think in part it comes from that. Um, so one thing that often gets picked up about Edo is um, that you know, people, people are very familiar with prints um, and prints of the floating world in particular. Uh, so actors and um, sex workers and um, theaters and you know, restaurants and all of this. And, all the and, good stuff. and they're, yeah, all the good stuff, all the really <laughs> lively stuff um, that the people, uh, that the French Japonists, the second generation French Japonese, not the first generation, the first generation were women. And they've been written out of the history. And if you want to read about that, Elizabeth Emery has got a really good book on that. But the second generation, the men who decided they want to be the authorities on Japanese works of art, um, they decide they're going to um, champion Japanese prints. And uh, one thing that's never really picked up about that, that's a very familiar story, but is that the prints themselves are kind of, they're coming out of Edo this enormous city that, you know, by 1800 is, is, has more than a million inhabitants and it's way bigger than London or Paris or, you know, anywhere um, in Europe at that stage. And it's exhibiting all the kind of um, hallmarks of modern, quote unquote, modern life mm -hmm. that you find in these, in these giant cities as they grow up and they're urban. And, they're, uh, and I think that's part of what fascinates people in Paris mm -hmm. is that they're seeing these urban, modern images. And that part gets sort of lost in the idea that Japan is this ideal place in the past. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so we don't have any prints in this exhibition. We are dealing with paintings. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that, you know, even among professional art historians can be a little surprising. You often find people who are only, they don't think about Japanese painting. They think about Japanese prints. Yeah. This is kind of, um, well, they kind of just utilitarian in this, in this, this narrative of Western modern, Western centric modernism, the development of modernism. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that's, oh God, that's so interesting because, because the idea that it was actually these, that this Japanese imagery gave 
European modernists permission to be a little bit more modern and actually yeah. look at the world, you know, feel more comfortable to kind of paint the world as it is in their mm -hmm. moment. And yeah. then you have those those artists collecting all the prints, all the Japanese prints, and that looks like they somehow took the reins to pull Japan into modern when it was actually the reverse. Yeah, um, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's an interesting moment, and and you know, the, it also could be read as a sort of productive misreading. Um, mm. You know, Van Gogh writes about Japan a lot in his letters, but he, he finds Japanese Quote, painting... Quote, unquote, Japan. A, yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> Japan is not a place. It's a, it's a, it's a construct. Um, and he's right yeah. in, in his way. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's this productive misreading of Japanese paintings because they don't know what the cultural symbolism is mm -hmm. of a crane. And, you know, that symbolism is, is over a thousand years old, and it's very... It's based in poetry and it's based in a very deep old culture, but they don't know that. They see this incredibly free image of a crane, say like the crane, the crane screens in this exhibition, and they feel liberated by it. Mm -hmm. It's not history painting. Mm -hmm. um, so even though they don't understand necessarily what the original intentions might have been behind that painting, what they do understand changes what they do. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, oh, it's so fascinating to look at at cultural cross-pollinization that way because yeah. it does change European art based on the fantasy yeah. and of course the problem is when that fantasy is then construed as as reality um, yeah, without exactly. a deeper historical understanding um, yeah that's it yeah but it's not it doesn't take away from from the japonisme moment you know exactly. that's its own separate thing exactly um, so yeah. so is that when you say that you and your your co-curators wanted to create painting Edo with more of a kind of cultural understanding of its moment as opposed to a 21st century understanding is is that what you mean kind of more more japan-centric more Japan scholarly centric? Yes, I think so. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that is, that is what we were trying to do to, yeah, I think in the, I think we still struggle in the Western Academy to, to have work, uh, to have area specializations that um, are just natural, that just belong. Mm -hmm. Japan has done a good job of being included and people, um, you know, the inclusion of Japanese prints in the, in the, in the rhetoric of a, a narrative of Western art history is often seen as, you know, doing the work, but it's a kind of in, a partial inclusion on Western terms. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't just allow uh, this category of Japanese art to stand alone mm -hmm. in a natural way. Um, without it being sort of exceptional in some way. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that we were very, we wanted to immerse people and have people feel the, the variety and the, um, the power of these works and whether that's power on a grand scale or as you say, power on the intimacy scale. And I would love to get to talking about uh, what you pointed out, this, this sort of um, zoom in, zoom out effect mm -hmm. of, 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 uh, of some of the, the facture. But we wanted it to be very clear that there is a, you know, it's a different ecology, but there's a very established ecology around art in Japan. And yeah. uh, it needs to be, 
is to be taken seriously. Um, and uh, we have the equipment to do it. Uh, we have, uh, the Feinberg collection is incredibly broad and very, very high quality. And it allowed us to challenge some of the, uh, the narratives that have been established among people who do study Japanese art. Um, and and uh, for those who don't, to, to introduce people to the fact that there's so much variety. Mm-hmm. Um, to to appreciate and that you know you do need to bring a different kind of looking to it um, but that if you're open to it hopefully it leaves you transported or changed or um, you're interested in a different way yeah yeah so you said that um, you kind of anticipated that people would want to come for Yukioi prints you know, that there was, you know, that when you, if, if anybody knows anything about Edo art, and that even that's a stretch, but if they do, then they basically, they want to see the Great Wave, you know, um, or, or something like that. You know, that's kind of what they associate. Uh, did that, was that part of the thinking when you were creating the exhibition? How do we handle our audience expectations and provide them with something that they weren't expecting and and yeah like what what was the thought process in in managing viewer expectations uh it's such a good question um yeah the the whole sort of great wave thing i mean it's this double-edged sword it's it's so recognizable and and so sort of celebrated that you know, you kind of, it's tempting to play on that, mm-hmm. that, that familiarity. Um, but again, it's another, co- it's a construct of the French 19th century Japanese, you know, to, to elevate that above, above painting was something that was done and has stuck around. So I think we actually tried to not, um, not engage that way and just to try and present something that was so rich that it would stand on its own ground and that we wouldn't be engaging with those narratives that we'd just be trying to create a new one a separate one in a way um yeah yeah, I I think that's perhaps one way of thinking about it yeah I mean it's certainly it's certainly a very difficult thing to in museum practice all museum practices the familiarity of something it's it's aura is increased by its reproduction in many ways right absolutely absolutely (laughs) yeah so um you know but we wanted to go back to you know what these paintings that people haven't necessarily seen before. And we've been showing some of these paintings in our permanent collections galleries, but not on this scale before. I think we wanted to allow it to stand um, as it does, as a, an incredible uh, body of work together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, could you talk a bit about the, the contrast of styles in the exhibition um, between incredible incredible the highly detailed highly articulate um you know flowers peacock feathers i mean you know the kind of thing that you you you're drawn in and you're just looking at it you know finding a new detail as Mm. you know you could stand in front of it for an hour and see something new Mm. um and then you also have these actually almost abstracted uh, uses of watercolor that that kind of um, I mean we've used the word, the word pool already but it's like yeah, you you yeah. find yourself kind of dissolving with with the paint um, mm. can you talk a little bit about just the the contrast and how both could exist in the same culture yeah it's, it's a very good question I think um, 
you know, there are a few ways you could tackle that. Um, one of them is time and one of them is taste. Um, so, you know, uh, we could look at, we had two sections that were really devoted to what has in the past been called quote unquote literati painting. Mm -hmm. And we called our sections instead pictorial cultivation and professional amateurism. Um, <laughs> I don't know how effective that was, but anyway, the walls were green. Uh, <laughs> so, but um, pictorial cultivation dealt with early ink painting in Japan. And ink painting has a really, really long history in East Asia and particularly in China and Korea. And it sort of comes a little later to Japan. And it's premised on this kind of trope of the amateur painter who is someone who has um, given a lot of time to study and self-cultivation. So writing poetry and um, appreciating paintings and um, rocks and uh, all kinds of sort of elevated pursuits. And this isn't just self-indulgence, it's self-cultivation in the in the service of your realm, actually, because the gentleman in, uh, in, in China, at least the gentleman scholar, is the person who is um, called upon to serve government and to serve government in a just and benevolent and capable way, competent way. So as an amateur painter, you would be painting using just ink and um, usually paper, sometimes silk. Silk's more expensive. But you're deliberately sort of de-skilling what you're doing because it's supposed to be amateur. You're not supposed to be selling it mm -hmm. um, like an academic painter who might work with expensive mineral pigments. And so that's kind of where some of the ink painting, the more abstract um, and intellectually freighted images are coming from that tradition. And so it's sort of, the idea is not that you're painting a mimetic um, representation of something is that you're painting the essence of something mm. because you're so cultivated that you can commune with the bamboo and, and, and you know and bring the essence of the bamboo in that moment say it's uh, we have a painting by Taiga Ikeno Taiga in the, in the exhibition and it's bamboo that's sort of whipping around in a, in a very cold environment and it's not even a whole bamboo you can just see part of it as it's kind of moving mm -hmm. And the, the trace, the gestural brushwork, uh, the ink on the paper, you only get one chance. Mm. You don't get a paint over that. That's it. You make your mark and that's it. Mm -hmm. So you have to be so prepared um, internally that when you put your paintbrush on the, on, the, uh, uh, on the paper, it goes where it needs to go yeah. and expresses this, you know, this resonance between the man and the bamboo, for example. So, yeah. so there's Also that. extraordinarily modern. Yeah, very modern, yeah. Yeah. but also very, very old. Yeah. Um, huh. And it's the same with calligraphy, you know, it's the, it's the trace of the person right, um, right. in the moment. So, so there's, there's a long history of that. Um, let's see. So then, and then um, you were asking about the, the sort of very more mimetic, very detailed mm -hmm. uh, depiction. So like the Okyo, Maruyama Okyo Peacock and Peonies, which was our kind of hero image. <laughs> That is absolutely mesmerizing when you start to look at the tail. It's extraordinary. All the, you know, the individual feather bobs and, and just so carefully observed. But also, there's still this sense um, that the painter is conveying to you that this is, there's an artifice here. It's so perfected um, that it's... Uh, I, I still don't think the, 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 um, the goal is... Is, is very similitude. I think it's in the service of something more. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that in general, this is a huge generalization, <laughs> but Japanese painting is often about what is painting. Right. 
and it makes you it makes it very clear that it's an image and that an image is doing something and it's not just a sort of window onto something you could see with your eyes this is something you see with more than your eyes um, and so Okyo is a very complicated figure himself because he did do a lot of life drawing. We know that. And, and this was part of his practice and the uh, practice of, of his students. And um, it's often been talked about in terms of um, quote unquote Western influence, which I really don't like to hear because it's just it's kind of a network of um, creative possibilities that's, a, that's just it's in the ether, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but if you look at that painting too, there's contrast between the way the peacock's tail is done and, and the sort of incredible musculature that the, the feathers are sitting on top. I mean, his neck is twisting. He's done that on purpose to show you that he understands what the skeletal structure is underneath, what the muscular structure is. And then he's put the feathers on top to show you. That. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's absolutely virtuosic. But then you look at the rocks and they're inky. They're abstracted and they're, they're much closer to the ink painting tradition. Mm-hmm. So you've got two things going on at once in that painting. And I think that the, the ground really brings out that um, artifice of the tail, um, which, is, which is really quite something. Um, it's easy to miss that. Well, and it's, yeah. it's also, I, so I took a course in grad school on Zen aesthetics and the tea ceremony. Um, but the, the seminar paper I ended up writing about was looking at Chinese influence on the tea ceremony itself and how you had this, this juxtaposition between wabi-sabi, between the, the kind of, you know, the withered and chill of Japanese art, which is meant to be very, um, comparing the teacups. I remember comparing a Japanese and a Chinese teacup where on the one hand, the Japanese teacup was was beautifully misshapen, you would think, and then you hold it and it fits your palm perfectly. And it, it has the perfect place where you put your thumb in, you know, this indentation on the side, and you're holding it with, with un, impossible comfort. Because, okay. but you look at it, and it looks misshapen. Because anything that is actually on the human scale is not going to be perfect because we are not perfect. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you would have this Chinese connoisseurship be a goal, but it was for a certain time, you know, that, mm-hmm. that you take this juxtaposition between incredible humanness and also mm-hmm. this aspiration for, for perfection. Mm-hmm. And you put the two side by side and you end up with this very interesting tea ceremony where, you know, you also have a cup that is perfectly glazed, that is perfectly symmetrical. Mm-hmm. And that is the, the Chinese influence on this Japanese institution. And it was, I mean, I hope I'm remembering it correctly, uh, but, but that you do have just this very almost incompatible relationship between the height of imperfection and the height of perfection (laughs) as you see Chinese influence on Japanese art Mm. it's interesting I think in the tea ceremony it's definitely a very particular case in in the case of painting it's you're absolutely right to bring it to invoke China because I think China is more relevant to Maruyama Okyo's painting than the west Mm. it's just that Mm -hmm. it's a nice easy story for people to, to 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 tell that it's um you know "Quote unquote Western influence." It's scientific drawing, but I think you're right to, hmm. to bring to bring China and um, academic Chinese bird and flower painting mm-hmm. into that picture there. But you're absolutely right; I mean, they still hold the 
the Chinese aesthetic alongside mm -hmm. the new the new aesthetic. Um, and it is a fascinating, like, how do you hold those two things together? Why are the two things? And you're saying the same thing with the um, the intimacy and then the you know, abstraction mm -hmm. in the same painting often. Um, it is it is a really interesting um, question. How do those two things coexist? And I think there isn't one answer, but I do think it's a very, very productive question to ask, hmm. um, to think about. And I think there are many answers and many ways that that applies to looking at, at Japanese, at, at, at things that were made in Japan, should we say, rather than, than Japanese art. I think it's a really great question to bring to any kind of looking like that. The maple screen, I think, is an interesting place to look at that. Um, it's one of it is one of my favorite pieces in the in the exhibition, I have to say. And you describe sort of dissolving into the textures of some of these 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 works, and that's one I really um, feel that you can do that. The trunks of the trees, where you got this puddling, this pooling effect going on, where they're just using ink, um, and it looks. I mean. It, it's very carefully controlled, even if it looks like it's not. But um, <laughs> this dripping in, this kind of um, tarashikomi technique, where you both you use the materiality of the ink to be both descriptive and abstract at the same time, so that you create the shape of a tree trunk, but you also, in the same moment, in the same material, create the the lichen and the moss and the roughness of the bark. Mm -hmm all at the same time in that same moment. You manage both of those things together and you don't create a verisimilitudinous, scientifically botanically accurate tree trunk, but you do create a tree trunk that when you see it, you know it. And you know it not just in your eyes, you know it from your experience mm -hmm. of a tree trunk and what, the, what that ink is doing. And I think that's something much more than just reproducing something you've seen. Um, there's, a, there's another pair of screens um, it's a Flowers of the Four Seasons uh, pair of screens by the In-End School. And um, it, the similar thing's happening there. And I didn't know it until I looked at it with um, Michael Dosman, who's the curator of living collections at the Arnold Arboretum at Harvard. And he came to see the exhibition and we, we went through it together. And he was so excited by that pair of screens because he saw things in it that I hadn't seen. And I, I really like flower painting. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> He saw things in that that I had not seen because he was looking at it with a botanist's eye as well. And um, he, he was very excited about it because he said, you know, you could teach a class on taxonomy from this screen. Hmm. And definitely those are not scientifically accurate, highly detailed depictions of the plants. But again, the painter has observed botanical characteristics of the plant in exquisite detail internally. Mm -hmm. And then Michael could read them. I couldn't read them because I'm not so knowledgeable plants but he could read them in the painting so for example he was looking at the depiction of pinks i think it was and he said oh i know this and this it's this species and look the painter has has got the i don't know the scientific word but for where the the stem will will swell just before the leaf point so from that you can tell it's this species hmm. i mean and i'm just thinking i'm doing well calling it a uh, pink I, I got that far <laughs> you know and he's like no 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 this painter knew pinks yeah because of this feature and the same with um Ito Jakuchu's black pine I was you know I thought I'd done well to write you know it's a pine and pines have a whole range of resonances in Japanese painting and Chinese painting and you know that's how we were reading this pine I mean it's pretty radical pine because it doesn't actually fit in the picture plane <laughs> I mean it's 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 um it's very abstracted mm -hmm. But then when we looked at it together, um, 
what I had taken as ink paintings, conventional moss dots, which is this is a it's you know a centuries old convention of painting moss by just dotting with ink, and people understand that as the code for moss. Uh, there were a lot of these dots on this tree, and I don't know. I was like, okay, well, there's a lot of moss on this tree. Mm-mm. When we looked at the botanical eye, they are. It makes it identifiable as the Japanese black pine or um, Pinus thunbergii because it has this crazy number of bracts that um, persist for a couple of years after needles fall out. And those were not moss dots. Mm-hmm. They were. It was the moss dot technique, but it was characterizing a Japanese black pine, not just any old pine. Mm-hmm. And that made us realize that the painter, Ito Jakuchu, was, was not just conveying any old pine. He was really conveying some kind of botanical knowledge mm-hmm. in, um, without scientific drawing. So that was a real revelation. And that actually probably wouldn't have happened if we hadn't had the pandemic because um, using Zoom, we were already collaborating with the Arboretum, but, you know, they're five miles apart and people find it hard to get to the Arboretum. There's no transport there, Mm -hmm. you know, probably there's no bus. So, um, but, and and how can you do a dual event if you're five five miles apart? But Zoom made that happen, and so we were able to do a lot more collaboration with them over the time that the exhibition has has been open. Yeah, that feels enormously authentic to, you know, again, how to actually um, curate authenticity in an exhibition. And it's not just what the art historians are drawn to, it's what the artists would have been drawn to. And they're having this kind of really incredible knowledge of of the the botany you know of these plants and and animals and you know i mean it's it's interesting to bring a botanist in and tap into that kind of authenticity it it feels like something that's been a running theme throughout this entire conversation is an incredible amount of authenticity both subjectively coming from the artists and also interestingly objectively and how you can have both so present in one image mm-hmm. again very modern <laughs> <laughs> yes i agree with you very much i think that's a really great term to bring to this but originality you know like uh, the kind of originality and individualism and avant-gardeness that we might associate with progress or you know um where painting how we how we might judge painting today those were not things that were at all um you know, part of what made you successful as a painter in the Edo period. What made you successful was was um, strong membership of your lineage and um, mastering what your lineage norms were and then bringing your own, um, I'm not going to say your own twist because that, that doesn't do it justice, but bringing your own authenticity, as you're saying, mm-hmm. to that sort of more prescribed um, way of operating. And your own subjectivity was part, was was very much wrapped up with with belonging to these lineages so it's really interesting you bring it up and and that's something I hadn't thought about um is that yeah authenticity plays a different kind of role here and it may give us another way of looking at um uh how how we as a culture today here and now in the 21st century validate or valorize um certain works of art and parts of our parts of culture that um that that are here mm-hmm. um dislocated from their original um settings yeah. um but what what the work i mean of course they are the, the edo periods you know it's it's over yeah. but the <laughs> but the works 
the works have all that time inherent within them and they are active today in the 21st century too. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's wonderful that you, um, you made that, that connection. Um, I love that. Well, I love the idea too of, of going to the Arboretum and seeing the, I mean, I'm not sure what, what uh, plants they actually have there, but you know, you can still see a flower blossom there yeah. in our present moment. And that brings these objects so much closer. It, you know, when I first started talking um, with Michael and, and with Ned at the Arboretum, it was, it was very, it was viscerally very exciting to look at these works in a different way and to see yeah. something so different. And, and I was reading um, Robin Wall Kimmerer's book at the time, um, Braiding Sweetgrass. She has this amazing episode in it where she imagines um, Linnaeus walking um, with uh, Nanabozo, who's the original man of the Anishinaabe people, and, and they're walking together and they're looking at plants together. And she has um, Linnaeus give Nanabozo his magnifying glass so that he can see all the, you know, the separate parts of the flower. And Nanabozo gives Linnaeus a song so that he can see their spirits. And I was like, oh. <laughs> Oh, if we could do even a little bit of that kind of synergy, yeah. that's you know I want to I want to see us try that, and um, so I you know I hope we've hope we've gotten some way along the way, um, and people don't like the term decolonizing because it's frightening, mm-hmm. um, but it, it, but to me it means a lot of different things, and I do think that that kind of trying to open up yeah. how we look together to other disciplines. I mean, we're a university museum and on a university campus. So, um, you know, we have, we have tried, um, tried that. And I do, I do feel like it's, it's really liberating yeah. and, and it helps connecting. We, we, the audiences we've had for these types of events we've done together have been much, much higher than when you just are aiming at one kind of audience. Yeah. Um, well, so. I, I would hope that your audience more than anybody is, is particularly ripe to engage in ideas, in the exchange of ideas, and and the way that to be able to look at these objects and say they had a context, they had a context as filtered through uh, the Western eye for a while, that influenced that context, and now let's see how we can pick the two apart and and also recognize that there was an incredible importance to the coming mm. together of these narratives for both sides. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. And how to make yeah. it present, how to make everything present because yeah. it's always going to be past. And if we want to <laughs> if we want to get something out of this more than just beauty, you know. Yeah. Exactly. We, exactly. Yeah, how do we bring it into our moment? Right. And I do think um Wow, we should have we should have had you write the the, the exhibition text. I mean, my God, that's exactly this is what, you know that was what I'm we were flattered. hoping for, and uh, and um, it's really hard to sort of put that front and center because it's not easy to just you know express that in text. Um, mm. So you you want to try and facilitate an experience for people, and it requires a lot of engagement from people. Yeah, you wouldn't think that this obstacle of actually seeing the objects in person would actually bring people closer to the objects in different ways. Um, That actually, I think, can teach all of us 
uh, a real lesson about accessibility. Yes. Because I think I think we just, you know, we as art historians, we romanticize being in front of the object and mm. its singularity and that erratic experience. And it makes us lose sight of of what can be so incredibly educational in a really mm. um, accessible way about these objects. Um, that, you know, a lot of people don't feel comfortable going into museums anyway. A lot of people don't have access to going into museums anyway. And to say, you know, no, 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 stand in front of the Rothko, then you'll get it, is... Uh, it's asking a lot of, of people who might not necessarily be inclined to to go to a museum at all. Um, and I think it, it contributes to this idea that there is a kind of intellectual velvet rope around them. Mm. And that taking Japanese painting and showing you the budding flower that it is able to capture or, you know, just just other ways of making the art really applicable to the world around us and recognizing that so much of modernism is hinged on the idea of experiencing your own subjective experiencing of the world around you. Um, And I think going back to the beginning, this, this idea of everybody looking at the same moon couldn't be more universal. It couldn't be more poignant. And that's, the artwork that you choose to open the exhibition with I mean that's so that's a really powerful beautiful idea and how it brought a world together in a moment when we were all going through something together and I've never experienced that in my lifetime where everybody you know where it felt like everybody was globally staring at the same moon (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely Um, yeah yeah. And so I think it, it makes this it makes this exhibition incredibly poignant. Well, thank you for seeing it with such um, clear and sensitive eyes. I, yeah. Um, wow. I, w- I would like <laughs> next time I do an exhibition, will you be on my advisory board? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Well, Rachel, thank you so much for this conversation and for taking the time. It was such a pleasure to talk to you about this exhibition and about this period and and the work that you're doing to really make it um, accessible, even as the exhibition has been closed for the majority of its run, tragically. Well, thank you so much for uh, making this opportunity happen. And um, I've loved talking to you about this. I haven't been in the exhibition myself for for a year. And I feel as though talking with you, I've actually kind of walked through the galleries with you. And I've seen new things through your eyes and the way you've seen the exhibition uh, today as well. And that's 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 a new experience for me. That's 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 fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Painting Edo closed permanently on June 6, 2021, but you can still see the images online and purchase the catalog off of the Harvard Art Museum's website. And you can also listen to our Lonely Palette episode on the exhibition, number 53, Painting Edo Post-Pandemic. Thank you again to Dr. Saunders and to John Connolly at the Harvard Art Museums. And we'll be back with new episodes of The Lonely Palette before you know it. In the meantime, check us out on social media, we're at Lonely Palette on Twitter and at The Lonely Palette on Instagram. And consider supporting the show on Patreon. 
at patreon.com slash lonelypalette. The Lonely Palette is a proud founding member of Hub & Spoke Audio Collective, and you can find more mind-expanding Boston-based shows just like this at hubspokeaudio.org. Hub and Spoke Audio Collective